The high priest, together with his allies, the Sadducees, was overcome with jealousy. They seized the apostles and made a public show of putting them in prison. An angel from the Lord opened the prison doors during the night and led them out. The angel told them, go, take your place in the temple and tell the people everything about this new life. So early in the morning, they went into the temple as they had been told and began to teach. When the high priest and his colleagues gathered, they convened the Jerusalem council, that is the full assembly of Israel's leaders. They sent word to the prison to have the apostles brought before them. However, the guards didn't find them in the prison. They returned and reported, we found the prison locked and well secured with guards standing at the doors, but when we opened the doors, we found no one inside. When they received this news, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were baffled and wondered what might be happening. Just then, someone arrived and announced, look, the people you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain left with his guards and brought the apostles back. They didn't use force because they were afraid the people would stone them. The apostles were brought before the council where the high priest confronted them. In no uncertain terms, we demand that you not teach in this name. And look at you, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you are determined to hold us responsible for this man's death. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than humans. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. God has exalted Jesus to his right side as leader and savior so that he could enable Israel to change its heart and life and to find forgiveness for his sins. For sins, We are witnesses of such things as is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Thanks, Holly. So we find our heroes, kind of quote-unquote heroes, in the story of Acts. Once again, in a brush with the religious honchos of their day. And it's speculated that among scholars that this might be a, a repeat passage, um, because there are uh, we've been kind of spinning our wheels in the beginning of Acts about uh, following the healing at the beautiful gate, and there are all these controversies, and it seems like they're relitigating the same controversies over and over. And then also later in the passage, like Brody complained that I gave him a passage about divine violence and money last week, which like that's where all the action is. But but la later in this <laughs> passage, they escape from prison as as if walking through walls. And there's another story later in Acts that is kind of like that when. Uh, the apostles are singing and the, the gates of the prison fly open. So I think it's kind of less important, um, all those textual details. Uh, I was hanging around family this week, um, both last night celebrating some birthdays and on vacation with my in-laws. And whenever you hang around family, you get these old stories that can't really be verified. And um, But some of those stories... Uh, come at you and you don't remember one bit of them happening or how they happen, but you also kind of got to nod your head and be like, yeah, that sounds like me, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and so I think that's a little bit what is happening with these with these stories is is we're a little confused at the timeline of how they're happening, but the, the fact that it wouldn't have thrown up any bells or alarms that the disciples are constantly in conflict with the religious uh, and civic leaders of their day, the, the fact that they're constantly being 
put into prison and somehow divinely finding their way out of prison makes these stories kind of habitual, <laughs> uh, not strange. Uh, I also think it's interesting that this episode from this morning's reading comes maybe from the, the good trouble that the apostles are stirring up by participating in God's healing of the man at the beautiful gate. It was that man that they passed by and saw so many times they started to fail to see anymore. And this man was now leaping and jumping uh, like, a, like, like a calf uh, and singing God's praises for the healing that he'd experienced. And, and of course, there were religious naysayers for that good news and that good act. Uh, yesterday, I think it was yesterday or in the last couple of days, I read this tweet by uh, Tim Keller, who's a New York City pastor, and not too many people would mistake him as some like way out there social justice warrior. And this is, seems like not very a controversial statement about Jesus not only preaching the word, but also healing the sick and feeding the hungry and caring for the needs of the poor. And let me just tell you, don't read the comments section. Um, it seems that it was, uh, for many, that this was a confusion about the primary work of the gospel, which is to preach the good news. Um, but it seems like the, the part kind of in Luke 4, Jesus' mission statement based on Isaiah 61, which is where Oak Church gets our name, was kind of mistranslated in some of these commenters' Bibles. Because Jesus gets up and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor but also to proclaim release to captives and sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, and jubilee. This, this new world coming into the midst of our world. These aren't separate acts. They fit together. This is the quote-unquote everything about this new life that the angel uh, charges these apostles to share. The angel says, share everything about this new life. And I think that that might be shorthand for, for what is on our screen right now. Luke has, uh, you know, chosen to tell this story of the early Christian community with all these little snippets and all these vignettes of these Jesus followers, followers of the way getting in trouble. And this sort of confrontation was so common and so characteristic uh, this kind of blowback they're getting kind of makes sense for uh, what they're doing. Um, th this, is, this is kind of our Christian ancestors' routine. And I, I think it's, it's good to claim that and to get familiar with that um, as we look out into our world where, where we realize, like, in the history of the Christian church, it's not uncommon for our Christian ancestors to, uh, to, to clash <laughs> with people for their faith. It's, uh, we, if we learn our Christian ancestors' routines, we, we also see that they have routine healings and routine brushes with the law and the gatekeepers. They have routine proclamation of the good news. And even in this passage, like semi-routine visits from an angel of the Lord and busting out of a prison becomes kind of routine in this wild new way. Uh, as Brody shared last week, in these stories, in this good news, we are being acquainted with an abundant, new, and real world 
that is being remade by the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We walk around, uh, I loved his turn of phrase, with clouds in our heads rather than our heads in the clouds because heaven is coming to earth and making its home among us. And so the jealousy and the indignation of the high priests and the Sadducees, it strikes me, if, that's, if all that's true, and I think it is, it strikes me that that jealousy is an artifact of a obsolete world where all those Isaiah 61 things like gospeling to the poor and binding up the brokenhearted and preaching release to the captives and liberation to prisoners and comfort and joy and jubilee, all those things don't happen in this old world that they're locked up in, but they happen now. They're stuck in an old world where dead people don't come back to life, but Jesus is raised from the dead, and they are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that lives in us. So sometimes we need a reminder of this new life. We need a reminder just how remarkable it is, just also how strange it is. Throughout the New Testament, the word for life and the word for salvation are often used almost interchangeably. This should remind us that our salvation in Christ isn't just a future event. It's not this wistful by and by. Leaning on the everlasting arms isn't something that happens sometime in the future. But it is present and it is an inaugurated reality that has already started. Salvation is at hand and eternal life has begun. Everlasting to everlasting includes today. <laughs> And so I think it would be nice if we had good, not just reminders, but good instructions for this life. And there's always, it's always nice when you can pull out like a nice Mary Oliver poem to help you with instructions for a life, right? This is a short and sweet poem, and it's sweet, I think, because it's so short and punchy. She, she gives us instructions for living a life, and the first is to pay attention. I think to cultivate this new life that God has made possible in calling us in Christ is that we must attend to it. We must offer our attentions to it. We must stay and focus and let our eyes like dilate long enough to see subtle shades like when you're in the dark and, and you just stay there long enough that you can actually kind of see in the dark, right? That, that, that we listen close enough that we can discern a still small voice. This is like the kid with your ear to the speaker. I know this is Philip Henry, uh, like listening to the way that they mixed the, the record. So you hear every single instrument in the symphony, not just one big amorphous glob. This is, this is what attention is. This is gaining a, a sort of vision that comes like not from a zoomed out telescope but from a, a zoomed in microscope or like a time-lapse camera that has been in the same place for long enough that you can see subtlety and change and small shifts. The apostles are learning that quote everything about this new life entails the joy and the surprise of the beautiful gate healing but also the anxiety and the interrogation of the Jerusalem council. Like their poles are being stretched out so that everything about this new life includes all of that. They, they, 
they're seeing this man in low estate not only gives them a sort of visibility that brings them trouble, but it also allows them to be witnesses in the fullest sense of the word. They become witnesses, and, the, and a reminder of the word witnesses is, is the same word at the root of martyrs, that, that they become witnesses with their bodies. They put their bodies on the line to witness to this new thing that God is doing in the world in and through them and sometimes even in spite of them and us. I really like, um, out in the Pacific Northwest, there's this guy named Tim Sorens, and he warns that while it sounds so simple to learn to pay attention to how the Spirit is working in my life and neighborhood, it sounds so simple, just pay attention. Yeah, <laughs> parents know that it's not that simple. Uh, the t- he says, the truth is, few of us have been taught to make this our default position, to, t- to make attention our default position. He says, it might just be the single greatest challenge we have as Christians living in post-Christian culture. We live and breathe in a culture that has roundly rejected the idea of God's agency in our everyday life. So this is our calling, to pay attention. Just this week, quote-unquote, just this week, to pay attention in our home lives, to pay attention with our neighbors and in our work and with our families, and paying attention happens because of the conviction that God is near. God is here. And again, Mary Oliver says elsewhere, attention is the beginning of devotion. We evidence our devotion to God by paying attention to how God is moving around us, to how God is moving in the people in our lives, to how God is calling us to to. to, to to witness and to to share and to be Christ to people who are hurting. This kind of attention means that when your world is on fire, you don't look away, but you attend long enough to see if, if what is on fire is actually a burning bush that is showing you the presence and the peace of God. That's important. We'll get, we'll get, we'll come back to that at the end uh, about paying attention when your world is on fire. The next part of uh, Mary Oliver's poem says that we need to be astonished. Little straw poll. Um, how, on a scale of 1 to 10, how amazed do you wake up any given day? Like, we talk about our, our default. Not very, right? I don't, I don't think we need to show hands for this. Um, you, you know, like when you do the poll and you click in your number and it says the average is here, like, I'm gauging behind these masks that we're about at, like, a 1.5, <laughs> probably. <laughs> you, you can tell me more about your amazing experiences later. But with the apostles, we must be willing to be amazed. Sure, it seems like it must be easy for them to be amazed. They're seeing all these signs and wonders. They're doing all these things they never thought would be possible. They're being sprung from prison, and they don't even know how it happened. But I think at the root of their amazement is just the simple and profound truth of God's forgiveness, God's intervention being worked out over and over. That's why every time uh, Peter gets a chance to speak, he kind of just says the same thing over and over. You killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. 
this is the program. Let's all get with this program. Quit fighting against God and work with God because God is here. And salvation is possible. God isn't far. God isn't aloof. Creation is being mended to be made new. This is amazing. This should astonish us. This is a game changer. The apostles are experiencing and bearing witness to, like, uh, again, like the vinning of heaven and earth, this transformation of all these things that they hold so common are being made uncommon by God's presence with them. I wonder if our levels of amazement might tick up if we walked around with this kind of awareness and anticipation. Not that we have to make any of this happen. Like, that is one of the worst feelings in the world, the pressure when someone wants you to be amazed and you're just not and you just can't conjure it, right? So that's not what I'm asking of you, but is that we walk around with an awareness and and anticipation that through our attention, again, I don't think anything necessarily new is going to happen to your life, but you might attend better to it and see what is already there. Through our attention, we might be able to better receive what God is doing and calling and including us in on. And lastly, in, in our poem is, tell about it. The poet and the angel both uh, are on the same page when they say, tell about it. Tell everything about this new life. The, the warp and the wolf of this salvation life is subtly contained in Peter's proclamation. You killed, but God raised. This sets a whole new pattern for creation, which has been groaning for redemption. This raised and exalted Jesus sits with God, watching over us, but also listening in and acting in subtle and powerful ways through the present spirit that is among us. This is the, like the master story that Paul tells in Philippians 2. Although, or in fact, because Jesus was in the form of God, he didn't exploit privilege, but emptied himself and became one of us, even in our death, even in a ghastly death, even in the most broken and low places in our societies and neighborhoods, so that God might raise Jesus up. And if God raised Jesus up, we also might be raised We might recognize him as Lord, as the way, as the truth, as the life, as the forerunner for, quote unquote, how things are now. This is the master story that we are witnesses to. This is the master story that permeates every square inch of our beings. As one scholar says, to be like Christ crucified is to be the most godly, and most human we can be, to be like Christ crucified. So that's why for Peter, it always comes back to you killed, God raised, because that includes us, that grafts us into the story of such profound possibility that accounts for how mean, how cruel, how violent we can be, but also how forgiven and how raised we can be and how on God's Uh, included in God's plan, we can be. This is surely something we have to (laughs) 
pay attention to and be amazed about and go and tell as we live and discover along the way. You're not going to know all this right away. You're going to know it and discover it as you're walking it, as you're doing it, as you're attending to it. Any confidence that we might have in our ability to tell this story is gained by the experience of God in common and concrete places. I think this is also how joy works. Like, uh, again, to go back to Philippians, when Paul, that letter is chalked through about joy, but it is also written by Paul in prison to a suffering community. And so Paul connects our joining in Christ's humility in this call that is common and available to us, a joy that is real and concrete, and even when it feels rare and fragile, it's a joy that is confident because it is a joy um, that is linked to the Lord as our strength, as Nehemiah says. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So I want to close with a couple kind of vignettes about um, how these instructions for living a life seem all good and fine until something goes drastically wrong. Like, it, it's easy to say, pay attention until you have like kids buzzing around you or until you're in the ER, it's hard, it's hard to pay attention. Like paying attention, coffee and contemplation seems like a privileged thing to be able to do to have hours to think about the things of God. Um, but it's actually in these seasons of stress that, that these instructions for living a life, this full abundant life are most important. Uh, it's actually when pressed, and that's why I love that these stories of the apostles happen while they're in court and in jail. You know, they're, they're working out their theology. They're working out what it means to be the church in court and in jail constantly, not under laboratory conditions. The Christian life, if it was a sport, would not be played in a dome. Like, you know, like it, it is always accounting for what is going on around it is deeply embedded and embodied. So recently we celebrated uh, Emmett's sixth birthday last week. And the thought had occurred to me at how strange the world has become in the last six years <laughs> since July 7th, 2013. L like how different, or 2015, sorry. <laughs> I, have a, I have a lot of children. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's also been strange since then. Um, <laughs> but in the in these last six years, just since 2015, how strange it has been for my family, for our church, for our country, and for our world. Like, first off, like I think about we, Oak Church planted in summer, late summer, fall of 2014. So in in summer 2015, we had a fledgling Oak Church that was much smaller and did not include hardly any of the people in this room. <laughs> uh, we're, we're trying to figure out how to be as a church. Uh, Jess, I think there's a slide of some early Oak Church pictures. You might recognize a few people, including short hair Meg and baby James, little Noah, Joe Longarino, Gary, the fixture, early potlucks. But, uh, in these, so, so I'm reflecting on that and reflecting on the ways that God 
is showing us what it means to be a church together, uh, how to weather challenges like money challenges, vision challenges, how to welcome people well, how to include people, how to, uh, one thing we learned really earlier is how to send people because people come for a short amount of time and you get so attached and love them so deeply and then you send them off to far-flung places. And, and so uh, we had, <laughs> at the time of Emmett's birth, we had a less than one-year-old church. Emmett is born and, <laughs> and then a couple years later, Simeon, and little did we know that while we're learning all these things about, about joining God and mission in the neighborhood and, and assembling a team and doing all these things, we welcome Emmett and, and Rach has deep and severe health complications related to, to the birth of Emmett in a way that um, uh, we didn't even know how bad they were or could have been. And, and we thank God for obviously the healing and the, the help and the, the presence that we experienced through that, but also, we, we also, to be honest, experienced a lot of kind of autopilot, a lot of not paying much attention. So it was in hindsight, and I get to pay attention to the ways that God was with us. Um, and then flash forward several years later uh, to another odd year in the middle of the beginning of 2000, uh, <laughs> when Simeon was born, 2017, um, and we had exp we knew we were adopting Simeon, and we had initiated that. Um, we were so loved and and come around as a church in that, and we had a disrupted adoption um, that was heartbreaking. Um, and then uh, several months later, then got to meet Simeon. And that was so joyous. And so again, as I'm reflecting, I'm thinking about this, um, everything that is included in this new life that we've been given. And it was, it, I'll be honest, the, the beautiful thing was to be able to contrast uh, the early days of, of both of these kids. And it was really the provision of God that um, allowed people to really come around us in the early days of Simeon, in in a way that our community here wasn't wasn't even built yet. It was so in flux and it was so young and fledgling. Um, we didn't have that yet, and so we got to mark with the birth of these two kids. The way in and in hindsight, get to attend to the way God is providing for us, providing people to weep with us, um, providing people to definitely rejoice with us. And and when we got to bring Simeon. Uh, home here, um, get to provide him with a home full of people who already knew about him and were excited to meet him in, in a way that, that was so different than just four, four or so years, three or so years earlier. And then um, also included in our, in our uh, reflection of these last six years, again, trying to pay attention to, to what God is up to in, in all this stuff. We think about the, the last, just since 2016, and, and the, the turbulent, the political turbulence, and the racial turbulence, and the societal turbulence, and the epidemiological turbulence that we didn't even know. Like, I think back, and I think we didn't even know what isolation was, or loneliness, or what polarization looked like in 2015. Like, we didn't even know what that meant. We didn't know what sorrow was. We didn't know what, like, international shared 
grief and trauma look like? Uh, and now we do. Like, we are different people now than we were. The world is a different place. And, and our church is a different place. It's, it's so beautiful just in this third week of meeting inside to look out and to see so many new faces. I'm so excited to meet so many people and, and to reacquaint with so many people I haven't seen in a while. And our, God has, has made our church so resilient in ways that surprise me. Um, and, and our leaders, like ways that Katie and Meg and our steering group and, and all the people who are important to this community didn't anticipate. Like, th- just some of these pictures show our, uh, our worship gathering in the field at the YMCA in last November when we thought, oh, it's almost over, right? Uh, or, or our Zoom, uh, kind of the skin on the front page of our slides for Zoom church. That seemed so fun initially, right? Or, or Meg getting ordained via drive-by at the shopping center was pretty cool. Um, or the development of so many deep relationships from doing afternoon church, Lakewood Communion over at El Futuro, over in the garden, things that we are, as a community, holding on to and continuing in, in real and true ways, ways that God was building into our community and showing us how we are to be, that we just discovered in the last year in the midst of trauma and sorrow and a hard time for everyone and we're still learning so uh, it's my it's my prayer that we continue to to learn and to 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 attend to and to be astonished and to tell and to celebrate together I mean, if you've been around you heard you heard rach mention it earlier like we, we kind of use as handles for Isaiah 61, hope, healing, and hospitality in Christ. And I think healing was the most kind of, I'm not sure what that means. I hope we find out as we go when we first started as Oak Church. Because, like, to be honest, like, healing churches kind of freak me out, you know. Um, but... We're finding out as we attend, as we experience, as we, as we look around and seek out at work that healing looks like all sorts of different things. And, and actually, um, this is something that we're experiencing quite a bit here. Healing sometimes just looks like rest. Just looks like a place to, to rest well. Sometimes it looks like being around other people with similar questions or hurts that you have. That can be incredibly healing to not feel like you're crazy or to feel like you're crazy, but that's okay. Sometimes healing is just throwing yourself into the work of loving and helping others who seemingly or right now have more immediate needs than your own. That can be really healing to be part of someone else's healing. Sometimes Healing is just being in a place long enough to get to know it and to learn what it means to be a good neighbor. So many of us have been so transient in our lives, just putting down roots can be so healing. Sometimes healing is found in Christ and entering into the waters of baptism. I hope that's, that's something we'll do really soon again. We, we haven't had a baptism in a while. And this kind of healing is like an active display demonstrating new life, being buried with Christ and raised 
to new full life. Sometimes healing happens at the table, at this table or the many other tables throughout the week, where for the hundred and one time you heard the words, take, bless, break, and give, and you were able to receive and to remember what it feels like to, to, to be near to Christ, for Christ to come to you, what it might have felt like to be those disciples on the road to Emmaus who ate with Jesus and their eyes were opened. That's what healing can be like sometimes. So as the story continues, hopefully into a far less strange and traumatic and sad six years, hopefully we'll check back here and it won't be as wild of a ride. Hopefully, even if it is, that we will be witnesses of such things. Witnesses of such things. Ones who bear in our bodies and with our words all of these things about this new life. Will y'all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you alone show us what full life is and can be. Lord, disciple us. Um, show us how we can pay attention and, and um, be recalibrated to your pace, your scale, your, your call in this world. Help our ears hear your still small voice. Help our eyes see the microscopic ways that you uh, are already here and present. Help us also be able to step back and see big pictures too. Thanks for the people you put around us who uh, often are the ways that you work in our lives, are your voice to us. And Lord, thanks for this place that you've given us, these neighbors around us, these tables that you uh, show up to again and again. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.